Welcome to the sixth episode of our conversation series. Today we're hosting a prominent anthropologist, Kathy Warner, from the Penn State University. The topic of our conversation is the relationship between lived religion and politics in Ukraine. With good reason, most scholarship on religion has focused on groups that influence the agendas of key social and political institutions. Yet might there be other ways in which religion is influential when it is simply present? Might something amorphously called our religion wield political power that by persuasively penetrating public and intimate spheres to such an extent that it becomes akin to second nature, allowing it to elude recognition, let alone critique? Rather than focusing on the ways religion challenges the secular, Kathy Warner suggests that religion can also quietly integrate into public space by accommodating itself to the secular. Uh, welcome to our conversation series. We're thrilled today to have a prominent anthropologist, Kathy Warner, who is a professor of uh, history, anthropology, and religious studies at the Pennsylvania State University. She received her doctorate in cultural anthropology from Columbia University. Her research employs ethnographic and archival methods and centers broadly on the politics of religion, secularism, and increasingly on human rights in the former Soviet Union. She's particularly interested in how the shifting politics of religion and processes of secularization in the USSR have shaped the social and cultural practices of everyday life in post-Soviet um, societies. She wrote a number of books, got a lot of awards. I'll just point out a few. For example, Communities of the Converted, Ukrainians and Global Evangelism, published by Cornell University Press in 2007, an analysis of how Soviet-era evangelical religious practices and communities in Ukraine have changed since the collapse of socialism. And this book won numerous awards, and I'm not going to list all of them, um, but some of them are the William Douglas Best Book Prize in Europeanist Anthropology from American Anthropological Association and, uh, and others. Her most recent monograph, which will be the actually topic of today, is a study of the politics of religion and vernacular religious practices in Ukraine, entitled Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine. We're very thrilled to have uh, Kathy with us. And uh, yeah, floor is yours. We will have a format following our usual kind of framework. The discussion will start with Kathy presenting her main argument. I will have a few questions and then it will open the floor to the, to the audience. So thanks very, very much for finding time, Kathy, and the floor is yours. Thank you, and thank you, Tonika, for this invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Um, so I've been doing ethnographic research in Ukraine for uh, about 30 years now, which I can hardly believe, but it's a place that um, has captivated my, uh, my imagination and my fascination. I find it's a place that um, uh, inevitably produces all of these kinds of puzzles and surprises. Um, so I thought I would talk about uh, a few of those kinds of paradoxes and counterintuitive uh, dynamics that uh, exist in Ukraine um, 
and to give you a sense as to how I have uh, developed them in this uh, book, which is uh, forthcoming, called Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine. Um, an abiding interest of mine over the years has been um, discovering sort of the interior lives of individuals. In other words, what, what is most important to people? What are those um, issues, ideas, habits, practices that are um, beyond compromise? There will be no give, no, no bend, no, uh, no any kind of watering down. Uh, in a word, you could call them moral convictions. What, are, what is most meaningful to an individual? So that's an abiding interest. And I have for quite some time now been interested in how politically um, certain uh, either political actors or regimes can tap into um, that most meaningful um, uh, aspect uh, of individual lives and uh, turn it into something of a political resource. How I'm interested in, in examining how, for example, the personal becomes political and correspondingly then how political goals can become very personal to individuals. So that's been an abiding interest of mine and it I began by looking at uh, nationalism uh, in Ukraine and the very uh, efforts following the fall of the USSR to sort of uh, engage in nation building as it was called then um, in Ukraine. Um, that gave way to uh, interests in identity politics, um, and then, as Tonika mentioned, uh, studying religious communities. And I've studied a, a wide, um, a broad cross-section of religious communities, everything from um, minority religious groups that tended to be very, very repressed during the Soviet period. And correspondingly, I was interested in why someone would join those kinds of groups, given the high uh, cost of, of participating in them. Uh, and from that, from that sort of very marginal position, then I began looking at orthodoxy. And from there, then uh, uh, into this current book that looks at a very large segment of the Ukrainian population that calls themselves just orthodox or prosto pravoslavni. That is to say, they, that is to say, they, um, which, is better, which is better than the kid we got last year. Um, <laughs> Uh, given the um, expanding uh, religious pluralism in Ukraine, um, I'm interested in those people who uh, form an alliance um, or for whom orthodoxy is meaningful, and yet they choose not to um, offer a pronounced alliance with a particular religious uh, orthodox denomination within Ukraine, neither with the uh, or Ukrainian Orthodox Church that's aligned with the Moscow Patriarchate or the recently created Orthodox Church of Ukraine uh, or the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchate um, and so on. Um, for me, there's a uh, uh, this approach to the uh, just orthodox has been um, animated by a puzzle that I've always found. Um, all of the, the topics of my research have come from what I've seen or experienced or discovered in the field uh, doing research in Ukraine. In other words, working on one book, uh, always the topic of the second book is born. Um, and in this case, I was really struck um, at the extent to which religion for so many people seems so important that in fact they don't leave it exclusively to the church. Uh, 
Um, and in, in pursuing that even further, I came upon um, tendencies of deinstitutionalizing religious practices. That is to say, taking them beyond um, uh, consecrated religious uh, places such as churches or uh, um, and the like, and to see how they then begin to enter um, public space and even public institutions. Um, so that was one puzzle. Why is it that religion is so important that it can't be left to the church? And uh, a second puzzle, you know, we're about to head into the holiday season. And for example, here in the United States, a country that also claims to be um, uh, have a certain degree of religious pluralism, there's inevitably a great deal of hand-wringing about what kinds of religious symbols can be in public space or can be introduced into public um, uh, institutions. That is to say, can we have a, can we have a manger? Is that too religious? Can we have a Christmas tree? Is that too religious? Can we have uh, if we're having those kinds of religious symbols, do we have to balance them with with a menorah, let's say, or with symbols of Kwanzaa or uh, all kinds of other um, issues? And this is an enormous subject of public debate. Uh, and there's inevitably uh, uh, protests and counter protests and um, it's it's a, a very significant moment. Um, and yet I can't help but notice in a place like Ukraine, uh, one can um, place something like uh, uh, an iconic figure, um, the an image of a saint in, let's say, a metro station. Um, uh, private companies will, let's say, uh, have a shrine to the Virgin Mary in the uh, right by the entrance to their building. In short, in Ukraine, there seems to be very, very little, if any, pushback to the kind of um, placement of religious symbols um, in public space and in public institutions. And I would say that that dynamic has, has only accelerated since 2014. Um, so I couldn't help but wonder why, why, why is that possible in a place like Ukraine uh, when that would not be possible in the United States? And one can look to other uh, European countries where that also would not be possible. Um, an anthropologist named Matthew Engelke wrote uh, an article in which he um, analyzed the efforts of the um, Bible Society of England and Wales in trying to introduce religious symbolism in public space. And for example, also at, uh, at Christmas time, they try to uh, uh, hang decorative uh, renditions of angels in public space so as to try to recapture, if you will, the religious uh, aspects or underpinnings of Christmas and take it beyond something that is just simply uh, a commercial bonanza. But uh, their efforts, for example, to hang angels, even abstract angels, were consistently blocked by local officials. And so in the end, what they were, uh, what they were allowed to uh, hang in public space were simply such highly abstract figures that no one, very few people understood them to be angels. So in other words, um, it's not just in the United States, in other parts of Europe, um, the kind of the projection of over um, let alone denominationally anchored religious symbolism um, 
is fraught. It's very difficult to do. And yet, um, this is not, I would argue, the case at all in Ukraine. So trying to figure that out was a second puzzle. Um, and thirdly, um, I, I, think, um, I think Ukraine in many respects has been uh, misread by a great many scholars. That is to say, I think it presents uh, all kinds of very distinctive um, paradoxical developments in identity politics that I think really merit our attention. Um, I think it has been misunderstood because, um, well, for example, referencing a, 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 an older historical book at this point by Kate Brown, where she looked at, uh, it was essentially a, an area that she referred to as Kresi, but, but she really meant Ukraine. And what she was talking about there was how um, Ukraine has gone from an ethnic mosaic into the Soviet heartland, which is what she called it. And she titled her book, A Biography of No Place. And I think by extension, a great many um, scholars have uh, taken that too much to heart. That is to say, they, um, they uh, miss, uh, they underestimate the enduring diversity um, that exists in Ukraine. And I think they underestimate it because of the unusual forms it takes. For example, um, uh, I'll set an example of, of language before going into religion, and then that'll give you a sense of sort of how I then have uh, approached this uh, in, in this forthcoming book. Um, and initially, after the fall of the USSR, there was an, enorm there was an enormous amount of hand-wringing about language politics. Uh, what should be the state language or state languages in Ukraine, Russian or Ukrainian? Um, at that time, there was a, a good deal of, of Russian spoken on a daily basis, especially in the large cities. And I think what has emerged over time is what anthropologists have called non-reciprocal bilingualism. That is to say, um, uh, uh, a fairly peaceful coexistence of multiple languages in play at the same time. Ukraine is unusual in that uh, the overwhelming majority of the population has certainly uh, perfect bilingual comprehension, if not perfect bilingual um, speaking abilities in both Ukrainian and Russian. And so as a result, you have um, individuals in the course of conversations uh, on the street, in shops, uh, even on television, um, interviewing uh, various personalities, political leaders, you have this where each person uses their own language and communication carries on uh, as such, fairly unproblematically. Although I might add, I do see a growing use of Ukrainian, but during this 30-year uh, transitional period, you have had this uh, uh, non-reciprocal bilingualism. And that's a very, very unusual situation because there are very few countries where you have that degree of, of bilingualism in multiple languages. I see a parallel kind of a situation developing on the religious front. Um, as is probably well known to most of the listeners of this podcast, um, Eastern Christian, um, in, in those countries where uh, Eastern Orthodoxy predominates, um, there is one church which tends to map onto the nation state configuration 
of, of that particular country. And this is, of course, why we have the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, Romanian Orthodox Church, um, and increasingly now uh, we have the uh, Orthodox Church of Ukraine. It's that nation state model that has, for the most part, organized denominational um, uh, institutional organization within Orthodox societies. Obviously, the, uh, the key exception to this is the Russian Orthodox Church that maps uh, onto sort of a, a more imperial configuration that uh, purports to represent not just uh, Russia proper, but also, of course, Ukraine uh, and Belarus and other um, uh, Russian-based uh, diaspora communities, wherever they may be. And that, of course, currently these days goes by uh, a concept that is often referred to as the Russian world or Ruski Mir. But Ukraine um, is demonstrating, once again, a certain kind of distinctiveness uh, in terms of religion. Um, uh, I wrote a book in 1998 where I argued that um, there were hybrid forms of identity and, and hybrid uh, practices that were emerging in Ukraine that were shaping identity politics in a very distinctive way. At that time, I could never have imagined the extent to which one would really have um, two, at least, uh, Orthodox churches in Ukraine um, that uh, purport to both be uh, the national church. Um, and this is, of course, complemented by the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchate. Um, so in other words, we have um, a growing spectrum of Orthodox churches uh, within Ukraine. Um, and Ukraine risks, uh, risks. Uh, it, it, perhaps it is going to become the first uh, um, Eastern society where Eastern Christianity predominates that has more than one Orthodox church. Um, that is very distinctive. And, um, and I think that is a, a very real uh, possibility. And so it's a new kind of hybridity, if you will, um, that is particular to Ukraine. So for this reason, I mean, um, I think on multiple levels, these are the three puzzles that I've pointed out. I think Ukraine really um, poses all kinds of interesting, uh, challenging questions that um, that beg answers, but also questions that reach far beyond Ukraine itself. Um, and I think these uh, puzzles, if you will, for me, are sort of epitomized by this very significant sector of the population that calls themselves just Orthodox. Um, the term uh, that's used in let's say, in surveys and the like is prostopravoslavny, which very often is translated as simply Orthodox. But I, I find this to be a mistranslation because rarely um, is anything simple uh, in Ukraine. And I don't believe people are saying they are simply Orthodox. Rather, they are trying to set um, a limit. That is to say, um, they don't say that they are just Orthodox because they're undecided or because they are not used to having uh, a choice of, of denominations, um, as some have argued. Rather, I think that they are um, deciding to announce an allegiance to a faith tradition, that is to say, to Orthodoxy, 
but refusing to uh, announce an allegiance to a particular denomination or a particular institutional structure. Um, that is to say, either for those churches who are part of the Moscow Patriarchate or the Kiev Patriarchate or, or, or um, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And that um, withholding allegiance to um, uh, a particular institutional structure doesn't mean that they are less religious or less inclined to spiritual matters, but rather it simply um, encourages and even fosters the practice of religion outside of institutional confines. And what I look at in the book are what I call vernacular religious practices. That is to say, um, informal religious practices that are at once um, grafted or symbiotically related to institutional formal religious practices, but yet they're overladen with um, a variety of forms of uh, individual innovation. That is to say, they tap into the authority and legitimacy of being religion that uh, an institutional religious structure and, and uh, formally credentialed religious actors offer, but yet um, the, these practices can be individually tailored so that they are particularly meaningful, so that they can be particularly integrated um, into everyday life. And as such, this is one of the ways in which we have people who consider themselves just Orthodox. Um, and I want to um, argue against those who would um, suggest that being just Orthodox is perhaps um, evidence of nominal um, Orthodoxy or a nominal commitment to religion, or um, that this is evidence of the high degree of secularism in Ukraine. Rather, what I see it, uh, what I argue in this book is that the just Orthodox have in fact a very pronounced um, allegiance to orthodoxy and even to religion, but their allegiance uh, includes um, uh, actualizing that allegiance on their own terms. And in such a way that then this kind of religiosity is practiced in, a wide variety of places, including in formal religious institutions, but also, let's say, in monasteries or at cemeteries or at shrines. Um, people can have religious objects uh, in their homes. They can um, uh, attend uh, exhibits where um, uh, religious objects are, are presented, or they can engage in various uh, art forms that draw very significantly on religion, um, most notably literature in that part of the world. In short, um, it's, a, it's an, a growing deinstitutionalized, but yet embedded in everyday forms of religiosity, everyday forms of religious life that allows a person to be both religiously active, but religiously active to a remarkable degree on their own terms. This merits our attention because this shapes the uh, um, this shapes the tenor of public space and public institutions in Ukraine, and it's this kind of willingness to embed religiosity in everyday life that I think begins to um, 
refer back to the puzzle I, I mentioned earlier about why is it possible to have these tremendous demonstrations of religiosity in public without any kind of uh, pushback, giving the growing religious uh, pluralism in Ukraine. And I do think it's important to note this uh, pluralism that not only exists in an Eastern Christian uh, field, as I mentioned with the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchate, and, and certainly the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, but also in terms of a wide spectrum of other uh, Christian and even growing um, Muslim, uh, Jewish, and, uh, and all kinds of other new age forms of religiosity. I think um, uh, one of the successes in post-Soviet Ukraine is the degree of tolerance for various forms of uh, religious communities and uh, religious actors. And, um, uh, and I think that is then reflected, that then becomes doubly interesting why and how it's possible to have such a pronounced presence of Eastern Christianity uh, in public space and in public institutions. Um, among the many uh, uh, significant aspects of this form of everyday religiosity uh, is the fact that it begins to contribute to, um, uh, and this gets me to the second part of the book, the politics of belonging. Um, the fact that you have people who are religious, but in this wide spectrum of ways, and this is embedded in everyday life, it makes it meaningful and it makes then religion a, um, a valuable political resource because it can indeed contribute to belonging, uh, to evoking feelings of belonging, to uh, evoking feelings of attachment, to certain places and to certain, um, uh, and to projecting certain uh, sacred qualities onto those places. And all of this by way of saying that it makes um, uh, a certain place more meaningful and those people who live in that place more meaningful. I see um, the, the um, Just Orthodox as a group that, like others, uses religion to connect themselves to others. Um, most prominently and most distinctively, I think those connections and those that sense of relatedness is forged both with past generations as well as with future generations. Um, in other words, a great deal of the religious um, the everyday religiosity is oriented towards articulating those bonds of relatedness to those um, uh, ancestors who uh, have passed away, as well as to future generations uh, of Ukrainians. But all that by way of saying, um, this sense of relatedness, which uh, uh, both institutional uh, uh, religious institutions as well as everyday forms of religiosity, then um, draw very heavily on history. History then becomes extremely important for precisely that purpose of articulating the bonds of, of, of relatedness and how this relates then to feelings of belonging. And I think this is one way, one reason that, for example, religious institutions are so significantly engaged in commemorating history and in articulating um, a certain understanding of one's past because it begins to articulate 
who are one's answer one one's ancestors which what is the um what are the parameters of the land to which one feels an attachment what 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 are the places and the peoples with whom one belongs uh in short then the use of history by both religious institutions and then by extension embedded in forms of everyday religiosity by by everyone but especially by the the just orthodox this then um begins to uh spell out the dynamics of inclusion and exclusion and that then begins to um uh, create very meaningful bonds of belonging that are then um, performed and enacted in these various forms of everyday religiosity. Um, and so uh, uh, the book then in some looks at how religion and these, uh, these what seem to be innocuous and what have been misread as nominal um, forms of religiosity, how really they um, have great tenacity and they have great meaning for those that practice them. And they are a formidable political resource at this pivotal period of time where, um, as we just had uh, November 21st, which was the anniversary of the beginnings of the Maidan protests in Ukraine in 2013, and as we're entering now into the eighth year of this hybrid war in eastern Ukraine, the, the stakes really couldn't be higher, both for um, um, politically using uh, religious institutions to steer the politics of belonging and steer the politics of allegiance in one way or another. And it is this very large contingency of just orthodox, I might add that a great many surveys, for example, um, note that about 30% of the Ukrainian, this is taken from a Razumkov survey in, in 2020, about 30% of the Ukrainian population claims to be allied with uh, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, and about 22 with um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, but 43 claim to be just Orthodox, and they state just orthodox, there are additional um, smaller single digit percentages that claim to be just a believer, just a Christian. But in short, there is a very, very significant group of people who claim to be religious in one form or another, but not in an institutional sense. That um, they are, if you will, swing voters in this, um, in this competition for allegiance. They are also, I think, an essentially important group to win over if one uh, attempts to mobilize religion or religiosity specifically for political purposes. If religion is going to be used to strengthen and forge a kind of um, a single national church, uh, Orthodox church within Ukraine, or correspondingly continue to forge these bonds of connection um, with Russia and with the Russian Orthodox Church via the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, this very large contingency of just Orthodox are going to be very key players in deciding uh, the fortunes of those various uh, institutions. And for that reason, I think they merit our attention. They will be um, 
a, a decisive, I believe, a force in terms of whether we will have a national church, whether we'll have a state church, whether there will be uh, political theologies that emerge that are effective in, um, in shaping politics going forward. And, they, and the just orthodox um, are going to be really key definers in um, setting the parameters for this uh, politics of belonging and the extent to which religion can and perhaps will continue to occupy a very prominent place in public space and in public institutions. So that's why I focused on them and I'd be very happy to uh, continue to, to, to uh, respond to questions regarding um, everyday religiosity in Ukraine and specifically how it relates to the politics of belonging. Excellent. Thank you so much, Catherine. And I will start with the first question, um, which I think is probably be very interesting for our um, listeners, maybe not so much for the audience, which we have still uh, anthropologists and sociologists, historians in the room, how to conceptualize religiosity as opposed to religion or faith. Would you give a quick recap of that to the listeners of the podcast? And another question, can you possibly unpack a little bit the idea of affective atmosphere of religiosity, which constitutes kind of the backbone of your uh, of your argument and uh, of the book. Thank you. Sure. Um, one interesting thing in doing research on on religion in Ukraine, I've learned to, um, especially when dealing with the the, the just Orthodox, those who uh, are so inclined, is I almost never use the word religion, because I found using the word religion uh, stopped. Uh, conversations, stopped interviews, dead and uh, it stifled any kind of um, uh, response. People would in insist uh, that they knew nothing and they they were not religious and they uh, it, it, it was entirely counterproductive to evoke religion. However, when one evokes faith, you get entirely different um, responses. And moreover, as an anthropologist, I mean, I use a method of participant observation. So uh, that is to say, um, uh, I would see very often what people would do. And very often I would, to my mind, I would see them very actively practicing their religion, even though the same people would say that they are not religious because they were understanding religion in a very narrow, formal, dogmatic, institutional uh, sense of the term. And of course, if you look in, in a place like Ukraine, and Ukraine is not unique in this sense, um, very low numbers of people um, actually attend a liturgy and fewer still uh, uh, participate in basic rituals like communion. Um, many don't know uh, basic tenets of, of, uh, of doctrine, even something like the, the Ten Commandments, for example. Uh, but that, once again, it would be a mistake to assume that religion is unimportant to them. Um, I very often, uh, and this is where I came to religiosity, I am particularly interested in what people do, not so much in what they believe or um, in ascertaining whether they're true believers or uh, transactional believers or, or sometimes believers. I'm interested in what people do in terms of practicing religion. Um, I'm interested in the extent to which people participate in religious traditions, even if they are so-called popular or full kinds of traditions. But that kind of participation, which is why I use the term religiosity, that kind of doing, practicing, um, 
nonetheless feeds into a, a communal sense of time uh, and certainly cyclical time that is very often religiously based and it feeds into a certain understanding of space and space that is our own and it's specifically that that uh, contributes to a politics of belonging so that's why um, I use the term religiosity. I'm not so much interested in to what extent a person is as a devout believer, a pious believer, um, uh, follows all of the rituals, or I, I'm interested in what people do, do and in, in, in the practices that they do that evoke the transcendent, that evoke otherworldly forces, however they might understand them. And I think if you think about religion in such broad terms, you'll find tremendous religious participation and you'll find tremendous faith in uh, uh, and belief in otherworldly forces. Um, and you get entirely different answers if you begin to speak about faith versus religion. And if you begin to observe what people do rather than taking at face value when they tell you that they're not religious. So I hope that answers that about the difference between religion, faith, and religiosity. Um, it's specifically that kind of religiosity and that tremendous practice of religion and the conceptualizing of um, many things in the here and now in otherworldly terms that I think trades on um, uh, uh, feelings of religiosity and cultivates religious sentiment, um, and, uh, and it appeals to religious concepts. It might not be directly in the name of religion, but it trades once again on um, a sense of the transcendent, a, a sense of spirituality. And this is why uh, I argue in the book, one of the things that makes this projection of religious symbolism, religious sentiment, and the political use of religious concepts so effective is that there is an atmosphere of religiosity in Ukraine, um, perhaps given the spectrum of institutional forms of religion, it, I call it an, an effective atmosphere of religiosity uh, because it is very wide and embracing of this once again transcendent otherworldly spiritual realm as opposed to promotion of a certain denomination. Um, this is, of course, a tactical move within Ukraine, given the, the, the various uh, denominations. This is a way of uh, peacefully coexisting and allowing all to, to participate, if you will, and to find a place in the public sphere and a place in public institutions. But this use of religiosity and the, this creation of an atmosphere that... Um, draws very profoundly on religiosity becomes effective. Um, and by effect, I mean, it not only, people not only see this kind of um, uh, symbolism and practices and, and participate in these kinds of practices, but um, that leads to uh, not just people seeing things and feeling things, but also certain kinds of behaviors. And so as a result then, uh, the atmosphere is not banal, it's not neutral. It in fact carries a certain effect, but it's an effect that engenders certain actions. And for that reason, it's politically very useful. Sometimes it can be volatile, it doesn't always engender the kind of reaction that is intended, but it's effective in that it sparks action.
Thank you very much. Um, I know we have a, a large audience here, so I will use my last question probably um, before opening the floor to the rest of the people in the room. Um, I'm wondering what is the, um, the role or influence of the state and organized religion in reinforcement of effective atmosphere of religiosity, if any? Oh, I think there's tremendous. I mean, I think it's it's directly with the participation of the state and directly with the participation of uh, of religious or organizations that you have this um, effective atmosphere of religion. They are very key players in creating it. I would also say it's this um, the this the growing deinstitutionalization of religious practice among not just Ukrainians. I mean, one can find this in multiple societies, but certainly within Ukraine that also feeds it. So, and that's why I refer to uh, the symbiotic relationship between uh, everyday religiosity and various state actors and religious actors. They're all active um, participants in creating this effective atmosphere of religiosity. Um, it, it, you know, going back to my example of the US, I mean, the state has to allow, for example, of the certain in certain specific instances, the uh, introduction of religious symbolism or religious actors. And of course, the state is fairly open to this. Um, and similarly, then religious institutions have to endorse that kind of, uh, or perhaps encourage the state to do that in the first place. And they are indeed doing that. Um, in the book, I look at, for example, uh, the growing chaplaincy in Ukraine that started with the development of military chaplains, given the situation on the war and the fact that on the Maidan, many of the clergy that participated there were called chaplains of the Maidan that then gave way to military chaplains. But it now has given way to uh, chaplains who work in in. In, in transportation centers, prisons, uh, hospital settings, and the like. Um, and you have to have individuals then who appeal to those chaplains uh, or at a bare bones minimum are not against that kind of introduction of chaplains who are not cl clergy per se. They, they occupy this kind of one foot in the in, in denominational institutionalized religion and one, and one foot out. And it's uh, against the backdrop of this growing group of just Orthodox. It's precisely why chaplain, the chaplaincy in all of its guises is growing quite significantly in Ukraine. So all that by way of saying, um, there are multiple, and one of the reasons why the effective atmosphere of religiosity is so strong in Ukraine is that there are multiple actors that are actively participating in creating it. Certainly the state, certainly various religious uh, institutions and the population at large. Thanks very much. We have um, now opened, we have opened the floor to the audience. We have Frank Sisson here. Um, and so floor is yours, but please also use the so-called hand rise button here so that I can see you. So Frank, please. Maybe because I'm north of the border where we wait for the Queen's Christmas message, uh, I wonder if in some ways you have an American view of uh, parts of Europe and certainly even parts of North America. I mean, anyone who's been to Bavaria sees how deeply all of these traditional customs are integrated within the German state that is multi-religious and complicated. So that's just a general uh, question. 
Then you said at the end, the growing group of just Orthodox. Is that statistically provable? Uh, my impression had been that Ukraine has shifted greatly towards people declaring a religion and saying they're Orthodox, but also within the last decade, an increasing number have also been denominationally. Uh, and that is, we now have the 30% plus the 22% who are declaring denomination. And then really the, the question of this is, how do you deal with the regional factor? My assumption is that in the religious areas, more religious practicing areas of Western Ukraine, one has many fewer percentage-wise just Orthodox. So in a way, you're, you're, uh, then as we move into central Ukraine, one has large numbers of Orthodox and maybe greater numbers, but greater numbers of all these three groups, and then move south and east and finds more Moscow Patriarchate and, and just Orthodox. So is, is your, did, what did you do to try and solve the regional part of your answers on this and, and how much it is? And then I guess the final question would be, uh, you know, so that, that, that there would be those who would still argue, and I don't have the statistics on it, that you are dealing still with a group that is probably within the Orthodox community, decreasing proportionately and certainly less important in the making of the religious decisions because of lower levels of practice, although I agree with all of your other comments. Final is, you can't just baptize your child, prosta pravoslavni. You have to go to a peep of one kind or another, or a, or, or a batushka, or a svashchennik. So what do your just orthodox do at those points when you need a institutional orthodoxy to be orthodox. Sorry for so many questions and comments on that. Mm, thanks a lot, Frank. Um, I'm wondering if you want to take a few more questions, Kathy, or shall we respond to Frank's questions first? Um, well, let me just respond to a couple of them. Frank, yeah, I counted five or six questions in there. Um, uh, I didn't mean to say that just orthodox is growing, although during certain periods of time, you can see that it is growing. Um, it's nationwide, I, I believe it was at a high uh, uh, of around literally 50% of the population. But going back to your, so in other words, I mentioned that as of 2020, it was 43, I don't know the exact number, I believe 43.6% um, uh, of the population. But so it, comparatively speaking, then since 2000, that is to say since prior to the Maidan, it's not necessarily growing, but it remains robust. Um, I would also, going back to the regional factor, this is very significant, you're right. Um, the, uh, there are, the just Orthodox uh, are reached perhaps 60% in, in parts of Eastern Ukraine and Mykolaiv in the South Odessa. So it's disproportionately in the, in the Southern and Eastern parts. Perhaps that's not, uh, um, perhaps that's not surprising. I would my partially why I uh, I wrote this book is I want to take issue with the idea of they have lower levels of practice. They perhaps just have other forms of practice that are not as institutionally anchored 
as they might be, say, in Western Ukraine, where there is uh, a far greater degree of pronounced allegiance to particular religious institutions, most notably the, the Greek Catholic Church. Um, but I want, to, uh, I want to try to flush out the forms of practice that the just Orthodox engage in, and to suggest that they're perhaps not less meaningful to the just Orthodox than those that perhaps attend the liturgy in, in other regions of Ukraine. Um, uh, speaking of uh, of rites and and religious rituals, you're right that um, uh, it's at certain life cycle moments, uh, baptisms, and especially funerals. This is the one I I focus on the most. Uh, one does have to make a choice, um, uh, but there I find that the criteria. Um, uh, is very varied as to what one chooses. And among the just Orthodox, it's not necessarily driven by perceptions of the political allegiance of a particular uh, religious institution. That is to say, they might choose um, a, a church that, you know, where their parents were, where, the, where their parents were uh, attended or where their parents had them baptized. They might choose simply choose a neighborhood church, a church where they like the choir, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these are meaningful reasons, but they perhaps are, are seen as mundane reasons, but they're not unimportant. Um, so you're right that the just Orthodox might make uh, a choice at those moments of life cycle rituals, but I see them bouncing around. Um, that is to say, to have their child baptized in one particular church, and then the child gets married in, in a church of another denomination, and then, you know, grandmother is buried in yet another. So in other words, there's, once again, there's, there's allegiance to participating in those rituals, but secondarily, on, on the denominational level, which is not to say that people don't know which denomination um, the church is and what the, the political agenda that is advanced by that particular denomination is. They're entirely aware of it, but that's not always a driving force in selecting a church for say a baptism, wedding or funeral. Um, and I would just add on the American, I, I lived for many years in Europe Frank, uh, um, and then uh, now I live in the U.S., so uh, perhaps that's why uh, uh, I'm stunned by these uh, discussions, which are endless in the U.S., but I lived for many years in, specifically in, in, in Germany and Switzerland and in France. Yeah. So I, I so yeah. let's uh, go. Okay, I think that's <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Kathy. So we have uh, Zoria and Ansgar and Peter Payne. Um, so, Zoria. All right, uh, Katrina. Uh, hi. Uh, Actually, you, you partially answered my most important question because I was wondering uh, why you were conceptualizing uh, the just Orthodox as swing voters when they were, when my impression is from also from field work is much more that they are sort of locally allegianced mm -hmm. in the sense of, um, yeah, in the sense of, um, uh, in the sense of uh, picking picking a local church and sticking with that, but what you've said actually piqued my interest further because I'm wondering like what proportion of people move around in churches uh, from church to church in your experience, and what proportion sort of have a more lasting attachment to their sort of local communities. Um, I, I agree with you. Uh, allegiances tend to be very localized, and that's why it's it's that mm, that choice of um, uh, 
the nearest church or the, the church they find beautiful or the um, uh, that's where their allegiance is versus let's say insisting on uh, attending a church of uh, uh, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine or the Moscow church and the like. I mean, in other words, you're right. It's these kind of uh, localized, um, dare I even say idiosyncratic factors that influence choices. Um, I, I Going forward, um, I, I anticipate that there's going to be a growing number of uh, Orthodox Church of Ukraine church buildings emerging. There's you know, an effort to try to uh, build more and more so that people will have a choice um, and I think that is going to, you know, the direct appeal is going to be, I think, to the just Orthodox. Um, uh, if you start to have two churches nearby or two churches in your village or town or the like, then that's what I mean by swing voters. Which one then will they choose? Um, and I think that just the fact that you have um, uh, a growing kind of a choice where uh, the choice is going to be uh, increasingly have a political component to it, much less against the backdrop of this grinding war that carries on yet into its eighth year. Um, and as to whether uh, the just, just Orthodox move around, um, many do. I mean, there are, um, you might be right that there are allegiances to, uh, uh, they might even see a church that's associated with the, the Moscow Patriarchate as their own church and sincerely see it as their own church because that's the church that, um, you know, their parents or their grandparents perhaps helped renovate or after 1991 or, or a whole variety of factors where they feel some kind of, once again, a politics of belonging, a participation, um, that that's their church. Um, but that's driven by those kinds of personalized forms of engagement um, and less so by people seeing, or at least the time I did the research uh, that I did, uh, not so much seeing their local church as being the arm of Moscow um, in their town or in their lives and the like. Um, and uh, I do think people do move around. I've seen huge numbers of people uh, based on a whole variety of factors, um, choose entirely different churches to have children, uh, grandchildren baptized in, and even including from Orthodoxy to Greek Catholicism and back again. Or they stay in what I called identitarian in between, mm -hmm. right? Uh, shamelessly promoting my own work. So Ansgar, please, uh, floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, well, my question is a bit from outside, so I I, I don't have uh, anthropological experience in Ukraine or deeper knowledge, but um, maybe that's why it's simple and it could be maybe just you can explain a bit to me the situation. Uh, well, of course, one one dimension of of question is is how how uh, religious people are, and and then you describe all this very interesting. Thank you, and uh, of course. Um, yeah, in sociology of religion, some of people who are uh, dealing with spirituality and so on and, and value this very high, then they will be excited from your analysis. But but so couldn't it be in this case about the just orthodox people, uh, just simpler? Uh, couldn't that be just a political statement to be to want to be outside these political uh, um um, struggles, yeah. So we we don't we don't have to forget that also in politics we are the same as in religion. 
not everybody wants to be part of the struggle. Not everybody wants to be take sides. So, so a lot of people, I guess, are just fed up. They, they are maybe they are afraid, or I guess uh, at least, yeah. So maybe this is a way to say, uh, I don't want to decide if I want to be part of this or of this institution because everybody knows this would be a political statement, especially in this situation. So then the just orthodox would be a very specific uh, kind of yeah, self-description for Ukraine. I think you're exactly right, um, because many of the just orthodox, I mean, this is the first puzzle that I was talking about, about thinking that religion is so important that it can't be left to the state. Uh, many of the just orthodox fall into this category. Um, they, um, you know, they have great respect for orthodoxy as 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 a civilization, as, as a religious, as an aesthetic, as a learned tradition, and that is meaningful to them. But you're right, there is a, a fountain of criticism that comes from the political engagement of, uh, of the various churches and what they see as um, a kind of a, a grabs for power, economic uh, gain, um, uh, clergy as, uh, you know, very often come in for very, very harsh criticism. Um, and I think you're right. It is very much of a political statement. In other words, they are declaring allegiance to orthodoxy as a tradition, but not this kind of highly politicized use of religion to advance specific political agendas. And that's why I think you have such a huge group disgusted by that kind of um, religion as political resource, uh, religion as people claiming to be religious and moral and the like, and yet uh, people see them as duplicitously uh, engaging in financial gain or power grabs and the like. Um, it's very much of a political statement. And that's why they are saying they're, they're declaring their allegiance to a faith tradition and practicing it, but practicing religion on their own terms in this kind of everyday religious way that is very often not within an institution. It, it, there's abundant criticism of the institutions and of the political engagement of those institutions. Um, but that very often, uh, given that this, the, this distance that they place between themselves and religious institutions, that very often has been read um, by scholars, uh, even scholars of the region, that religion is unimportant. That to Ukrainians or to Russians or to uh, many Eastern Europeans, because people don't go, they don't um, they don't practice religion in that kind of what is very often in a in a Western European or in a North American kind of sense. They're not members. They don't show up on Sunday morning. They don't believe in terms of uh, doctrines, tenets, and the like. But um, that's what I'm going up against, that there are people who believe, but they might believe in, for example, uh, ancestors, spirits, ghosts, the soul, and all kinds of other concepts, um, not purely in, in terms of dogma. And they might practice, but it might not be a practice that takes the form of showing up on Sunday morning. Perhaps they go on pilgrimage, perhaps they participate in processions, and they spend a great, a great deal of time um, at, let's say, cemeteries, honoring the dead and the like. Um, so they are religious, but in a somewhat different way. 
And um, that's why, uh, and, and their way of being religious is a, a very much of a, a formidable political statement. That's why I uh, don't think simply orthodox is an appropriate translation for prostopravoslavni, because they're not suggesting something is that, that they're simply orthodox, rather they are setting a limit. They are neither with the Moscow Patriarchate, neither with Kiev, neither with, you know, they, they are de they are setting a distance uh, between themselves and institutionalized forms of religion, but not with religiosity and not with the practice and religious beliefs. And that's why uh, still the, the political use of religion is even effective with, with this particular group. That was a good question. Thank you. Thank you. We have Peter Payne. Um, just thank you very, very much for really insightful uh, talk, and I look forward to reading the reading the text. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, if you would, to tease out uh, the concept of belonging a, a little bit more, if if that's if that's possible. In particular, I'm thinking uh, of. Um, there are different types of belonging, right? Do I feel I'm belonging to my my nation, uh, my, my my region, um, even my my local parish? And when you're talking about the concept of belonging, are you talking of, are you kind of primarily referring to to one of those levels, or is that all of the levels? Or how does that how does that work? And then also kind of. Uh, extending that a little bit, um, are you interested in using this kind of concept to tease out and understand uh, people's relationships but in, in terms of the tensions between the different churches, right? So in terms of the uh, geopolitical issues uh, and how that relates to the tensions, um, particularly with the uh, Moscow Patriarchate. Well, I think the um, feelings of belonging play out on all the levels you articulated, certainly on the national level, regional, uh, and, and highly local levels. Um, of course, I think what is the most interesting these days, uh, given the backdrop of the war and the kind of institutional developments that really went into high gear at, um, in late 2018 when the Ecumenical Patriarch uh, said he would grant a Tomos and the uh, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine was created. That then, uh, that kind of in institutional backdrop uh, really ratcheted up the uh, stakes in terms of creating feelings of belonging on the national level. And that then really uh, accelerated the use of religious institutions and then by extension, religiosity in whatever form it might take. Um, to try to forge a sense of belonging that is going to be on the national level versus, or correspondingly, you know, a sense of belonging that is this Eastern Slavic, uh, you know, uh, deep historical roots of, 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 of orthodoxy that are uh, then epitomized by the Russian Orthodox Church um, and by feelings of belonging, let's say, with you, Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, separate and distinct even from the Russian Orthodox Church. So the, the um, I think religiosity operates in terms of creating feelings of belonging on all those levels, but the stakes are far greater these days on the national level. And I think that's why we see, um, for example, uh, such overt appeals to uh, interpreting history on the part of um, these institutional churches in Ukraine. It's um, it, it's a pronounced effort 
whether one um, uh, focuses on World War II in terms of, let's say, as the, uh, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate does, to suggest that um, the Soviet victory over Nazi fascism was possible because we banded together and we were all together. And uh, this created then a great state and a great nation that achieved a great victory. Um, you know, in broad brushstrokes, that's the, um, the, the, the narrative that that particular church um, uh, not only articulates, but uses to create rituals and enactments that reaffirm that, that allow people to not only believe that, feel that, but in fact perform that. Um, and here I'm thinking of the various processions and all kinds of other activities that they sponsor. Um, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, um, in, and in a far more um, uh, incompatible with the Ukrainian state, highlights then um, attempts during the Second World War to achieve Ukrainian independence and showing, demonstrating the extent to which this is yet another attempt that Ukrainians have, uh, have banded together and attempted to create um, their own uh, sense of peoplehood, their own state, and their own sense of autonomy to write their own ticket politically and otherwise to create their own destiny. And yet it was crushed again by um, by Soviet forces, Bolsheviks or in prior reiterations and the Russian Empire in prior reiterations. And so that creates then a different kind of politics of belonging. In other words, we have always suffered at their hands. Um, and so the inclusion, exclusion, um, those parameters are articulated in different ways, whether you're talking about the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, the inclusion then is in this um, Eastern Slavic Orthodoxy that uh, embraces traditional values that are separate and distinct and that are, I even say, purer than those in Gairopa that were um, where uh, gender and sexual identities and all kinds of other things are uh, are possible. In other words, there's the violent moral violation of God's law, et cetera, et cetera. So the 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 parameters of who's included and who's excluded differ there than they do from other churches. Um, but all this by way of saying, you have then the proposal of all kinds of cross-cutting forms of belonging um, that uh, muddy the waters. Um, and I think um, for some, they're way too muddied and those stand back and those become the just orthodox. But that's not to say that um, those various religious institutions just allow them to stand back and refuse to allow, uh, refuse to choose an allegiance. There are ongoing attempts to bring them into the fold. And um, going back to Frank's initial question, I think there is uh, there are pronounced attempts to try to um, make the just orthodox or or encourage the just orthodox to choose one side or the other. Thank you, Kathy. We have Katyvan uh, Hi, um, so always nice to listen to you, Katy. I have a more methodological question. So when you're looking for atmosphere, what are you exactly looking at? Because I find it so hard myself to work on, on the atmosphere. I, I was researching the houses in, in Tbilisi. And when you're there, you know this atmosphere, but what, what exactly uh, could you, that, that would be great to, to talk to. Thank you. That's a great question. And I, I, I wrote in the book that um, 
I traced the genealogy of other anthropologists that were trying to grapple with this very issue because you're exactly right. An atmosphere is something that you feel and it, it, it predisposes a person to not just feel, but when you start talking about an effective atmosphere, feel, think, and, and, and act in certain ways. And although, um, for example, during certain events, there's a very pronounced atmosphere that can be seen um, and identified as well as felt, like for example, during the Maidan protests um, or other kinds of episodic events. Um, it's harder, but it's still very, very relevant to identify an atmosphere that is ongoing, um, which nonetheless predisposes people to feel certain ways. Um, just to give an example, um, you know, I'm, I'm always, uh, uh, again, sort of surprised that the um, the relevance and the heartfelt importance of death and loss. And, you know, on one level, it's not surprising. I mean, the the uh, the just the experience of the 20th century has been very brutal in Ukraine, um, and that's just taking the sort of the recent past that many people can still remember, uh, in which there has been quite a lot of death, violent death, senseless death, and quite a lot of suffering. And so on one level, it's not surprising that um, there is this atmosphere uh, that creates a predisposition to not just commemorate death and loss, but to do something about it. And that amounts then to a certain kind of atmosphere, which then perpetuates certain orientations, inclinations um, that I think are very relevant in terms of everyday life and certainly in terms of creating the kind of moral convictions that I'm looking at, as well as in political convictions. Um, I see atmosphere as, um, if you will, uh, you know, we used to speak about culture and anthropology, and then there was a sense that our conceptualization was too bounded and too, too static. And I think atmosphere, I'm hoping that that recaptures what was good about culture. That is to say, an atmosphere that pervades um, feelings, thoughts, and actions, but is far more, um, uh, I was going to say fluid, but that's perhaps mixing metaphors, uh, uh, ever-changing, malleable. Um, but it is something that one feels. Um, and as a result, it's, and especially when it's, uh, on the everyday level, you can feel it, but it's that much harder to describe. Uh, and it's that much harder for um, uh, to animate for someone else. But it's, I think for people who live in it, it's, it's very omnipresent and very, very powerful. And maybe building on, on, on Katie Gurchain's question, I was wondering what, what is non-effective atmosphere of religiosity? Is there, is there a religiosity in any sense, in any form or any extent, somewhat in non-effectual kind of constellation, if any? Yes. I mean, I think you can create an atmosphere that is um, banal, is one way other anthropologists have, have characterized an atmosphere, um, um, or is it at, at best neutral? It doesn't um, the feelings uh, that it prompts uh, might not necessarily be the kind of feelings that provoke action. Um, the feelings might be less intense. The feelings could be uh, of a calming or a passive kind of a nature, inspire curiosity, but not necessarily inspire uh, the kinds of emotions that trigger action. Um, 
And so I do think that, for example, um, uh, once again, referring back to one of Frank's questions, in parts of Europe where um, there is also a certain kind of atmosphere, and it's an atmosphere, one could say, of religiosity, but it harks back to a sense of cultural heritage. Um, in other words, it harks back to a sense of um, the past and what has happened in the past, which contributes to uh, a sense of identity in the present, but it is nonetheless um, contained, if you will, in a sense of cultural heritage, which is very different, I think, um, uh, than the kind of atmosphere in a place like Ukraine, where where there's certainly a component of cultural heritage as well, but it's a cultural heritage that propels forward, that is nonetheless still very forward facing. Um, and it's very, it, it draws on the past so as to help define the future. Um, one arguably one could say, you know, the same thing happens in Europe where a sense of a cultural heritage to try to position Europe as a Christian area um, uh, um, and justification, for example, one looks at now the, the Belarusian-Polish border uh, where, uh, you know, you have all kinds of Muslim refugees attempting to come into Europe. And one of the reasons why then this, once again, the politics of belonging becomes a politics of exclusion so as to include, if you will, and reaffirm the Christian cultural heritage of Europe. Um, and that, once again, it's that has a, a, a present and even a future component. But I see the dynamic as being far more intense in Ukraine, that it's, of course, you know, harks back to a certain cultural heritage, but it has a propulsion forward to a far greater degree. And so that's why I would never describe um, the atmosphere of religiosity in Ukraine as being banal, neutral, you know, the background. Um, it's genuinely meaningful. Thank you, Kathy. We have uh, Frank Sisson and Andriy Kravchuk. So Frank, go ahead. Okay, uh, and quickly, uh, you, we've discussed so far political choice and church but not uh, the different forms of orthodoxy that are being offered to, uh, to these just orthodox. Uh, that is, uh, the Ukraine, Orthodox Church of Ukraine, to a degree, has the, in quotes, reform movement of orthodoxy of the 20th century. Some of it is politically related, such as use of language, you can argue, is also a political issue. Some of it is merely how should a woman dress when she enters a church. There's a, there's a marked difference in what's permitted in the Moscow Patriarchate and what the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And on an intellectual level, there are the traditions of the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church and the reform movement in one church and not in the other. To what degree do these also play a role? So it's not just, I, I think, a political divide in choice, but also a choice of where you're going in orthodoxy play any role in, in your surveys and, 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 and what you've been able to gather? I think one of the reasons why you, um, you have this group of just orthodox is they would like to decide for themselves how they dress, for example, um, and not be obliged to take a, a scarf and wrap that around themselves with the pretense that they're wearing a long skirt, for example. And I think that's one of the um, 
one of the uh, factors that drives, if you will, the deinstitutionalization of um, of religious practice and 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 shifts it to let's say cemeteries or to um, various kinds of processions or pilgrimages and the like, where in, in many instances you're right, one encounters those um, institutional prescriptions, be it on you know language use uh, or, or or dress, especially for women, that that comes in very strongly. But I think it's specifically uh, a will to try to. Um, be the authors of their own forms of religious practice that encourages people to um, uh, become just, just orthodox and engage in these kinds of everyday forms of religiosity. Um, a person who, let's say, will go to church so as to light a candle and perhaps, um, perhaps uh, you know, say prayers and the like, various acts of devotion, but they do it on their own terms, on their own time, um, versus, let's say, attending a liturgy. Um, I think this is um, uh, this is what uh, characterizes the just orthodox. They wish to be authors of their own religiosity. Having said that, um, they would like it to be effective and um, and recognized as religion. Um, they would like it to be uh, uh, authentic. And so as a result, then they are then obliged to draw on institutional forms of, of religion and to at least acknowledge or accommodate, whether you're talking about language or whether you're talking about um, various uh, forms of, of dress, uh, they have to accommodate that. And they do. Um, but I think it's a greater, it's wanting to escape from those kinds of prescriptions that fuels the kinds of everyday religiosity that uh, I'm seeing. Thank you very much. We have uh, Andre, and with that, probably we will have space for one more, maybe two more questions. So Olena Panich is here, um, and maybe Katrina, if she wants to ask again, but uh, now floor is to Andre. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Kathy, for a wonderful presentation. I look forward to the book. Um, I guess most of the questions have been about the just orthodox, and I think your comprehensive answers have really covered probably everything. I'm not really sure my questions have uh, anything new, although I do uh, come into it from a different angle. You uh, referred to the surveys that uh, brought this category to light, and um, another um, finding of post-Maidan surveys was that um, public trust for um, institutional churches, along with uh, the volunteer movement that emerged, uh, was much higher than for uh, state or government institutions. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, that's what I was beginning to wonder with, how, how to square that with the uh, process that you have uh, described of um, deinstitutionalization or uh, distancing from, uh, from the uh, institutional churches. Um, and I guess I'm also wondering about the uh, just orthodox as a category, to what extent is that um, a matter of hybridity on the one hand, or is it more a matter of um, diversity? How many uh, people are actually, as mentioned before by many others, uh, are ambivalent about the institution that they may attend on a, on a given Sunday, but still recognize the importance of an institutional framework 
so denominationally indifferent, but institutionally kind of recognizing that the operation of this orthodoxy in, in whether it's more Ukrainian, more Russian, or, or what have you, or hybrid, um, is, is still a framework that, that is recognizable um, first and foremost as, as, a, um, uh, as an institutional reality. And um, I'm, I didn't realize there were so many aspects of this question, but anyway, apart from just orthodox, um, it, in the way that you have described it within that broad category, is there no room for a secularized orthodox conception or a nominal orthodox conception? I think um, one would expect that there would be a diversity of expressions of that just orthodox um, identity. Anyway, I'll stop it there. Well, that's a lot of, a lot of interesting questions. Um, I think in some ways I can combine them. Um, I see, um, I, I think to take the last one first, I do think this just orthodox category is very broad and very elastic. And it does include those that you called secular orthodox or nominal orthodox. I mean, in other words, it's, it's precisely its flexibility and elasticity that is going to allow people to uh, consider themselves orthodox. And as you said, they to be denominally, denominationally indifferent, but yet I, I would say committed nonetheless to orthodoxy, orthodoxy perhaps as cultural heritage, as civilization, as a faith tradition. Um, you know, people define what it is specifically that they key into differently. And it might be all of the above or, or something, uh, you know, yet another factor. The interesting thing about the just orthodox is that they, uh, they call, they, they ally themselves with orthodoxy. So there is a commitment of sorts to something once again, whether it's cultural heritage, faith tradition, um, um, or the like, but they are denominally, denominationally indifferent. And if you think that on one level, you know, orthodoxy in other Eastern European countries is predicated on the fact that one belongs to all churches, one, one can attend all churches. There aren't the kind of formal membership rosters, of course, that one finds in other denominations in other places. It, so in other words, they're really grafting and adapting that kind of um, broad embrace and that broad sense of belonging to Orthodox churches, wherever they may be. Um, so in that sense, I, I see them as not really being ambivalent. They're fairly clear and they're making a conscious decision. So this is, I'm arguing against those that interpret this category as people who are undecided. I don't think they're undecided. I don't think they're not sure whether they uh, they're, uh, they they want to uh, support the Moscow Patriarchate or the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. I don't think they're undecided. They're making a con they have decided. They're making a conscious decision to to declare themselves just Orthodox. To you know they are open to Orthodoxy wherever it might be, uh, in whichever form they find it that is meaningful to them. So. Um, uh, I, I would say that going back to your uh, point about trust, about higher degrees of the uh, uh, after the Maidan, there were higher degrees of trust in religious institutions versus various state actors, for example. Um, one interesting development that I think is worth keeping our eye on um, is related to COVID. Uh, if you look at the kinds of uh, uh, 
organized efforts uh, to resist any kind of mandates in whatever form, be it masks, be it uh, vaccination, or any kind of regular, you know, regulations on movement, um, those tend to take on a very anti-state uh, tenor. Uh, and uh, frame the state as intrusive and highly overstepping its regulatory um, uh, privileges. What then happens in Eastern Christian societies where you have um, uh, a church that is uh, closely allied with the state or works with the state? Um, and of course, many of these uh, churches have had very pronounced um, views on, on COVID and all these a variety of other regulations. And so I think uh, it'll be interesting going forward to see to what extent attitudes towards the state um, and falling levels of trust perhaps um, are going to affect um, inclinations to let's say join a church that is supported by the state. Um, or, and similarly, a church that then is going to support those kinds of state-driven uh, mandates in whatever form they take. So that's perhaps a quick answer to your multitude of questions, but thank you very much, Andre. As we're running out of time, we have seven minutes, so I ask uh, the three questions, maybe we can collect them. So um, Olena first, then we have Nino and then uh, Katerina, so please ask questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy, for your good, so nice research, and I, I'm very excited that I can read one more your paper. And uh, I, I, I will try to uh, to to express my my um, um, question. It's about uh, belonging, and uh, is. Uh, uh, maybe, I, I don't know, uh, maybe it's a little bit confusing, but maybe you a little bit uh, just answered uh, this question already, but to some extent. But for me, it's not clear enough um, if uh, all those people who are, um, just realize themselves as just orthodox, uh, what kind of community do they belong and how do they uh, describe this community? And one more question is about the state. You know, after this, all these um, events about Maidan and, and uh, uh, just re recent period of, of, of uh, Ukrainian uh, history, it's uh, um, the perception of state is a little bit changed. So people uh, treat the state differently than they treated it uh, just some time before, 10 years before, uh, because the state is... Uh, it's I'm not sorry, just... can you ask the question because we have really... So, so uh, maybe you can uh, a little, uh, tell, tell a little bit more about what do they mean about state and how, st how they imagine this agency realized by state, if, if I may ask this question. Thank you. Thank you, Nino. Thank you very much. I try to be compact, um, but I cannot start with question. I, <laughs> um, uh, thank you very much. And I, I really agree with you that they are, are decisive. They, they knew what they do. And um, it is very, very uh, close to this 
decision uh, be political, not to be political somehow. Um, I, I found it very amazing what you what you said uh, that that they don't want to talk about religion. It is very likely what I found out in post-Soviet Azerbaijan when I um, tried to uh, um, um, ask about citizenship and about uh, politics. What is politics? And the answers were uh, just you say they don't know they. And this is answered somehow. And I go in this direction that they are choosing. Uh, kind of third space, I don't know, to be neutral, not to choosing. And um, then it's my question, can we uh, see this uh, um, uh, declaration to be just orthodox kind of citizenship practice, to be just Ukrainian in the sense? So against this state using this as a political resource, answer as a citizen, free manure, free room for maneuvering somehow not to deciding and just be ukrainian without this uh, very sensitive political discourse and uh, thank you very much nino and we have uh, katrina yeah um very briefly i was wondering if you looked into the politics of how physical churches are built I mean, we all know that in Kiev, there's been loads of incidents where religious communities have simply taken up space in the middle of the city. The Orthodox are particularly well known for that. Sometimes you also have the neo-pagans. In one particularly notable case in the Satinna church, you have two groups, Orthodox and neo-pagan, basically arguing with each other every Sunday. So I was wondering if you'd taken, ever taken a look at that. Mm -hmm. Okay, should I offer a response then? Yes, please. Yeah, we have a couple of minutes. So um, I think Dino and Olena's question actually uh, blend quite well together. In terms of what, what the Just Orthodox might belong to, um, I do think it, it takes on uh, national overtones, if you will. But I, I think, you know, your, your uh, suggestion about uh, citizenship practice or a form of practicing citizenship uh, is certainly worth exploring. Um, in other words, I think one of the reasons why people declare that nonetheless claim this allegiance to orthodoxy, it allows them to participate in the sort of the cyclical experience of time and various traditions or practices um, that uh, enjoin them to other people. Um, but uh, by doing it in this um, every in these everyday forms, very often, as I mentioned, outside of institutions, they escape the kind of judgments. Going back to what Frank mentioned earlier about, you know, for women not being dressed appropriately, um, you know, if you are, for example, let's say at a cemetery or at a, a sacred spring or the like, um, you're less likely to be judged or condemned or to be found that you're doing something wrong and incorrectly or your beliefs are wrong. Um, and I think it's this will, uh, this inclination to escape judgment that also propels people into this kind of everyday forms of religiosity. And I do think it allows people to um, fully take their place as Ukrainians and, um, and, and as citizens of Ukraine and this sort of belonging that what they're belong what they're belonging to and i i really think even some people who belong to or who claim an allegiance to the ukrainian orthodox church of the moscow patriarchate maintain that that's fully compatible with being a, Ukra a ukrainian citizen that um uh many don't 
reject this idea that this is, you know, the arm of Moscow coming down into their village and and controlling their thoughts. I mean, and and making them feel, uh, you know, empathetic with uh, separatist forces in, in 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 eastern Ukraine or otherwise accepting of the annexation of Crimea. In other words, it's not incompatible with claiming uh, a feeling of belonging to being Ukrainian and, in fact, being a citizen uh, of Ukraine. Um, the far more complicated question is, Katarina, is about the politics of how churches are built. Um, uh, this is uh, an, an, an extremely um, complicated uh, and, and fraught question for which I, I, I fear I cannot answer adequately, and I'm sorry to end on this note. Um, there are many, many factors that go into who is financing uh, the construction of churches uh, and on whose land. Um, the, uh, the participation of certain oligarchs or otherwise wealth, wealthy individuals, either overtly or covertly, is, is pronounced. Um, and that makes a difference. The participation of various states, uh, of state actors, be they on the on the national level or on a local level, is quite formidable too. Not just in which churches are are, are built, but which churches uh, can or are allowed to reaffiliate, or and other such questions. So this is where once again, um, it, it's impossible to look. At, if you will, everyday religiosity in isolation, just as it's possible to look at religious politics, even on this knit grit level in terms of how churches are built, because there are really um, a myriad of factors that go into shaping them. And that's why um, whether you speak about everyday religiosity or the politics of belonging, you have multiple actors that are all um, sometimes in, at cross purposes working with each other, but other times in concert with each other. But in, in any event, they are all engaged with one another. And this is what uh, forges the religious landscape in Ukraine today. Excellent. Thank you very much, Kathy. And thanks, everybody. Please uh, join me in thanking Kathy through this you know, virtual round of applause, maybe. And uh, also, please feel free to join our seminar series at Lund University Christianity and Nationalist Platform that we've recently um, created. Um, so I'll be now stopping the recording. Thanks, everybody, again. This recording will be available on Spotify and iTunes and other mediums. So, yeah. And I thank all of you for being here and for your wonderful, thought-provoking questions. I enjoyed it.